0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Kotton, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 Per year, Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash member Use code Feb twenty twenty two at checkout. That's bit.ly slash DSR member and use code FEB twenty twenty two at checkout. Nine twelve ten twenty eight
2: two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoff. I'm coming to you from very cold, very snowy New York City. We are joined today from Washington, D.C., by Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who's actually in her office in Washington. How's Washington, Corey?
0: Washington is freezing, and I already miss Californians complaining about 67 degrees in January.
2: Well, there's a lot more to complain about in Washington than the weather. So we'll get to that. And uh, across the river, In Alexandria, Virginia, of course, we have with us Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you today, Rosa? Oh, life is just peachy, David. You are always cheerful and upbeat, and and, and we look forward to sharing in that on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, Our California correspondent today is Evo Dalder of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which is just like the New York Council on Foreign Relations, but with thicker pizza.
3: Thicker pizza and uh, better ways to deal with snow. By you going to California. And in my case, <laughs> the way I deal with it is getting the hell out of there. Yeah, It was yeah. one degree when I left and 67 when I landed in Palm Springs. And You know what? It's, that's, it's worth it.
0: And people were complaining about 67 degrees because you know, that's not, a Californian's
4: birthright.
3: Yeah. But most of the people here are not from California, which is.
4: Well, and this is this is probably going to be a perfect segue into the topic du jour, because if the Russians and the Ukrainians were in California or Florida or somewhere sunny and pleasant, they probably none of these international tensions would be taking place because everybody would be sunbathing. And indeed, who was the philosopher who had developed an entire theory based on. uh South versus North and people in sunny, warm climates were indolent, but didn't fight with each other. And people in frigid climates were very diligent, but kept tearing each other apart because they I were feel bad. Like
0: the history of indigenous relations in the country of Brazil should refute that theory wholesale. <laughs> yes,
4: this is true. There are some, there there were some flaws in the whole theory, but apparently he built a fairly elaborate theory. I'm trying to remember who it was to any of you.
2: Uh, there was a guy in the eighties. I remember the, this book came out and caused a lot of upset well you know there are a lot of theories but I'm, I'm willing to bet you there's a mcdonald's in ukraine and a mcdonald's in russia too
4: this is true and, and we're gonna have to build this into our theory
2: exactly it's like we, we you know evo you guys should do a whole series on theories of international relations that are just hooey
4: <laughs> dim-witted theories of international relations based on weather and mcdonald's
3: the problem is that that's a life's work
2: <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. So, Rosa is correct in identifying the topic du jour, which, of course, is the continuing crisis on and about the borders of Ukraine with uh, Russia with something like uh, 120,000 troops on the borders. Who knows, maybe 30,000 people who might pick, take up their side already inside Ukraine. And uh, the U.S. government still thinking that it is more likely than not that Russia will invade and uh, the Russian government making all sorts of noises, uh, including Putin speaking on this for the first time directly and saying that, uh, you know, the U.S. is not uh, listening to his perfectly reasonable request. There was also an incident in which the Russians have accused The Ukrainians of a drone attack that killed a Russian soldier. Uh, We might expect stories like that to ramp up as one got closer to a day in which action took place. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. I'm going to start with Evo. Where do you think we are right now, Evo?
3: You know, I change my mind on that almost every day. My gut tells me that Putin is trying to find a way out of the crisis that he created. I think he moved sometime in, in late fall, believing that we were in a maximum point of weakness. Biden's post-Afghanistan collapse of his popular uh, of standing, his huge disagreement with the allies over Afghanistan and then the the ruckus over AUKUS with the French uh, and sort of the idea that Biden was weak and this was a time to uh, to push. He looked at the Europeans and said, His nemesis, uh, Angela Merkel, is gone. The Germans are divided. He looked at Macron and said he's got an election coming up. And the right and the far right all agree on one thing, which is that Russia needs to be part of Europe. So they're not going to do a lot. Uh, Boris Johnson was, you know, uh, every single day dealing with yet another email about yet another party, uh, about yet another place in In number 10. And he was just generally weak and thought that he could bluff his way to divide the Europeans Europeans and the Americans and maybe get something. You know, I don't think he really thought he was going to get a written guarantee that NATO will never enlarge or that uh, all the troops and infrastructure that was built and set up since 1997 in Eastern Europe would Would be moved home, and and and, uh, that the U.S. would unilaterally withdraw all of its nuclear weapons and everything else from Europe. But maybe he thought he was going to get some some of that, and instead what he got is he got a net. Sorry, not going to do it. And oh by the way, on this issue we're not divided. We're dividing a lot of issues, but on this issue we're not divided. And we're going to actually put more forces in Eastern Europe. Sorry, we're going to do more to help the Ukrainians. Too bad. And oh, by the way, if you do something really stupid, we're really going to do serious economic sanctions, and they're going to hurt you. And so now he has to say, okay, am I going to push forward, or do I find a way back? And you know, I think he, I think he's boxed in, which is not a good thing. Caged animals generally don't act in in, in rational or, or predictable or let alone uh, peaceful ways. But I think he's looking for a way out, and and the fact that this diplomatic dance that we start, that they started in, in mid-December with these draft treaties, which were sign it or, 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 or leave it and, and uh, you know, unilateral surrender on the part of NATO has now led to talk after round of talk after round of talk. Today, uh, Lavrov and, and, and Blinken talked again on the phone. Boris Yeltsin will talk to, uh, uh, not Boris Yeltsin, oh my God, same guy, Boris Johnson. You know, it's wow. partying, right? It's wow. this partying stuff. <laughs> Boris Johnson uh, is going to talk to him tomorrow. Macron is going to have two calls with him in four days. And so maybe he's trying to find a way out. I find it's hard to figure out what that way out is other than surrender, saying no mas, too bad. I was wrong uh, and do something else. But I think that's where we are.
2: That sounds like an excellent interpretation of the events. I concur with that. And Rosa, of course, you have to acknowledge It all comes down to AUKUS and the submarines. Would you like to talk about the submarines now, Rosa? No, you
4: can't make me.
2: Rosa's taken a strong stance against talking about the French submarines for months now.
3: They're actually U.S. and American submarines. That's that's the problem.
4: That's because in in an earlier podcast, Evo, David ambushed me with a question about that at a moment where I had absolutely no idea. And so I've been quite sensitive about it ever since.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she just ruled out the entire subject.
4: No submarines. Undersea warfare. Australia. No water.
2: (laughs) Exactly. What do you think of Evo's uh, take on this, Reza?
4: I partly hope he's right. And I partly fear he's right. I I hope he's right in the sense that I hope Putin is sitting there thinking, uh oh, what's my way out here? Because I really don't want to have to invade Ukraine. And that would be bad. I don't want to get into a huge, huge conflict. And I don't want more sanctions. So I hope that's right. But what I what I fear you're right about, Evo, is that there aren't a lot of obvious face saving ways out for him uh, at this point. And, you know, even if he is now regretting his actions and feeling, you know, he may be boxed in and he may feel like he at this stage he has no choice but to do something aggressive, which I my guess would be calibrated fairly carefully to be just enough that he can go back and, to you know, go, you know, look what I did. I stood up to those uh, bad Westerners. Um, but that he would hope would not be so aggressive that it would generate a, a more severe retaliatory response. But do I think he's likely to get any of that right? Probably not. I do have a question for, for you, uh, Ivo, although we can defer it until after Corey gives us her take. And that question is, NATO has been pretty impressive in presenting a unified position What's with Ukraine? You know, then the Ukrainians are running around saying, oh, these Westerners are so alarmist. The U.S. just has to shut up this talk of war. It's ridiculous. I feel like my head is going to explode when I hear that. And and I can't quite figure out who is the audience for those statements and what, if any, actual impact do they have on the situation?
2: If, If I can step on Eva's answer there, I had a conversation on precisely that subject with what we call in the business, a senior State Department official um, who said that it was his impression that Zelensky was afraid of the economic consequences of acknowledging that this was imminent because he felt that the capital flight and other consequences would be really severe. And they've got a lot of problems associated with that. I did hear another analysis from a Ukraine specialist I know, in this case, a woman who said Zelensky has been spectacularly incompetent. Let me turn to Corey to pick up on this.
0: So I don't disagree either that Zelensky's got a hard path, trying not to panic a country of people who have been under constant threat by the Russians for seven years now. And I also don't disagree that he's doing it badly. But what I remember that John McCain taught me is that we shouldn't expect people who are scared and in societies in transition to make heroic choices. That places much too much of a burden on them. Our responsibility is to square our shoulders, put our arm around them, and help make them safe enough to make decisions that are in our interests as well as in their Mm interests. So yeah, Zelensky's not great. So what? He's new at this in a very difficult set of circumstances. I think we should mostly give him a pass on that. I agree with most of what Eva said, which isn't surprising because I not only was a student of his, I'm an acolyte of his. The one place I'm slightly nervous is on the notion that Putin's looking for a way out. Because I, I hope that's true. I don't yet see evidence of it. The thing that worried me most that I have heard about Ukraine is the notion that the Russians are shipping plasma forward to their troops, because that's a perishable and pretty scarce item and you only need it if you think people are gonna be hurt and killed. So, I mean, maybe that's an errant report, maybe that's Putin trying to dial up our concern. I agree with Rosa's assessment that NATO has actually done a magnificent job keeping 30 countries moving more or less together and holding Germany the weak link in this chain at the moment. But also Putin tried to play the Hungary card, also apparently to no success. And those are both huge victories for the West and redounds very strongly to the administration's credit and particularly to Secretary Blinken's credit, because the president's bungled this a couple of different ways. And Secretary Blinken going to Berlin, not only shoring up the government, but giving a public speech, about why this should matter to all free countries and reminding Germans what it must have felt like to be a frontline state was really masterful. I frankly didn't think the administration had that in them. And they did a really good, they are doing a really good job on the diplomacy part of it, I think.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Evo, let's pick up on that. I had conversation with both a German and a British diplomat in the past couple of days talking about this. And both of them used the same word with regard to the coordination effort. They said it was unprecedented. They said that there were more phone calls, more meetings, more virtual meetings on this at multiple levels throughout the past couple of months than they ever recall having seen. And that one of them was talking about how it was kind of returning muscle memory to NATO. You know, in other words, that over 30 years, a lot of that had atrophied. And that here you actually had this alliance facing the original threat that it was created to respond to. And all of a sudden it was coalescing at the right moment. You were the ambassador to NATO. What do you think?
3: So I think all of all, all of a course said and, and all of what your German and, and British interlocutors said is true, with one exception. I'm not sure it's that unprecedented. I would say that actually this is the way it's supposed to happen. and. I think if we had this conversation exactly a year ago, we would have expected a team of Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, Austin, et all, Avril yeah, Haines yeah, and Bill. Don't Bush.
2: forget Julie Smith. Julie Smith. And,
3: and, and, and now, and now, Julie. Julie and Julie, and of course Julie, who has been there since really virtually the beginning of the diplomatic outreach. Right, she got there in, in late November that that team would have done this job, right, which is the normal way in which you deal with allies. You talk to them a lot. You do a lot of meetings. You do a lot of visits. You spend a lot of time. Oh, by the way, let me also mention, you know, Karen Donfried and Torio Newland and people like these are seasoned people who know how to do this. The surprise is because they screwed it up so badly in Afghanistan and then so badly over the thing we're not supposed to be talking about which has something to do with underwater reptiles or things.
4: They learn Uh, from their mistakes.
3: But well, I mean, they they sort of whether they learned or not, they got muscle muscle memory returned to them. Whenever there was a really big thing where NATO needed to be united, this is what you do. And we did it in 2014 after the Ukraine. You know, remember that everything that the Russians are complaining about now is a direct result. Of what we did in 2014, putting troops in Eastern Europe, preparing you know, a new land command, new flags, preparing the way to find an, a real ability to defend the countries that we had brought into NATO years, in, in some ways, decades earlier, in order to reassure them in the post-Ukraine crisis, we did it in Afghanistan when we had to do uh, in, in 2009 and 2010 to get the surge. You know, remember we we not only deployed 30,000 American troops, there were 10,000 more European troops. By that time, there were 50,000 European troops in Afghanistan. They didn't come because they all decided to get on an airplane. They came because we spent a lot of time putting, putting this together. So I'm not surprised that NATO is united because the threat is real. And our ability as, as a country to lead at critical moments just exists. It's when we don't do that, that things really go, uh, go, go haywire. Even so, it's impressive. And I think that, you know, back to my original comment, I don't think Putin thought we could do this uh, and that everybody would stand together. And I think he's surprised. And so he's recalibrating what that means. And, and I, I totally agree with, with, with both Rosa and Corey. Uh, uh, this can go really bad really fast because he wants to find a way to, to, to save face. I'm just impressed by one, it hasn't happened yet. And two, we seem to continue to be talking. As Churchill said, jaw jaw is a hell of a lot better than war, war. And that's certainly true in this in this particular case.
2: Especially, Rosa, for the people of Ukraine, you know, the, the people of NATO. They may be affected by this. You, there, there are some ways that they might be the people of the United States may not even pay much attention to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, going back to the point about Ukraine, they're squarely in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. And if any of this goes wrong, the people are going to pay the bigger price for them, right?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to talk about this in terms of grand strategy and geopolitics and shifting alliances and long term interests and the The danger of and all of that is actually important to do, but but there is a danger of losing sight of the fact that we're talking about people who are going to get killed and people who are going to be displaced from their homes and buildings and property and infrastructure that's going to be destroyed uh, and an economy that's going to be devastated if any of this happens. You know, and that I think that is part of what is fueling the urgency for the diplomats who are engaged in these conversations that these are people who, both from their own prior experiences and in, in many cases, their family's experiences, have a really clear sense of the human cost of conflict. That's as it should be.
2: Yeah, no, no, no doubt it is. Corey, you know, I saw, I think, if my memory is still functioning, a couple of days ago, you tweeting out something about Elliot Cohn's article in The Atlantic which posited, and I'm oversimplifying it, you can clarify it, but essentially that part of the problem here is that the image of Russia's role that Putin has in his mind is dead, is never coming back. And that because what he is trying to do can't be achieved, it makes the situation somewhat more desperate and dangerous. Does that sum it up? And, and why did you call that out?
0: Yeah, Putin didn't ask for anything Russia could conceivably have thought the United States and its European allies would grant. (laughs) A commitment to never take in new NATO members, to withdraw allied forces from the territory of existing members, to never assist in the professionalization of militaries outside of NATO. He's basically seeking a rollback to 1991. Let's replay the post-Cold War period more to Russia's liking. And I think it's really important that we don't allow the Russians to suggest that, you know, NATO ruthlessly marched right up to Russia's borders and threatened it. NATO tried to forestall expansion talks for a long period of time, in order to try and build a solid relationship with Russia. And for the last 30 years, we have made no progress in bringing the Russians to an understanding that they are more secure when the countries on their periphery are also secure and everybody becoming prosperous. That's not what the Russia that Putin wants, That's not the Europe that Putin wants. And for him to claim that NATO promised it would never do any of these things, whatever NATO did or didn't say in 1991, it is Russia's intimidating behavior that has been pushing countries that are formerly Warsaw Pact, formerly Soviet to the West and has now pushed Ukraine to the West as well. So, it is Russia's behavior that is determining NATO's membership, not ambition on NATO's part. For Russia to now say, you know, you're violating international agreements. They violated the Budapest Memorandum. They violated the CFE Treaty. They violated the INF Treaty. There's a reason countries are clinging to NATO, and it's precisely because of Russia's behavior. And I think, Elliot, Foot stomped that really nicely.
3: It bugs me tremendously that somehow the Russians have been able to a large extent to determine the, the terms of debate here. I mean, why are we talking about NATO enlargement uh, as an issue? Only because the Russians say, and, and a lot of people are buying the idea that a NATO enlargement is a threat to Russia. It's not a threat to Russia. It's the Russian threat to Europe that leads to NATO enlargement, just as, as Corey sort of, sort of underscored. And here's the interesting thing. Putin today once again said that the U.S. And, and NATO should withdraw its forces back to where they were at the time of the signing of the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997. And he literally mentioned the act. What does that act do? That act. Said that Russia will accept that NATO will enlarge. And that NATO said, we don't think we have to put forces forward so long as the security environment doesn't require that. Well, when you start invading other countries, the security environment changes. And I don't think we have, I I think the administration has tried to do a really good job, but I don't think we have done as good a job, and the European governments have done as good a job of sort of not only pushing back on this mantra. But just denying that they have the right framework for thinking about it, because it isn't about NATO enlargement. It's about Vladimir Putin and his insecurity being surrounded by countries he can't control.
2: It's worse than that. It's about Russian enlargement, because who has enlarged their borders since 1997? Right. right? They, you know, well, you know, they have, whether it's in Georgia. or That
0: is in- a great
2: point, David. You should tweet that out. and We will all retweet it. I'm not the- going to tweet it out because Mike McFall tweeted out something to that effect a couple of hours ago. He, he oh. didn't. He didn't, he didn't let him take credit. Yeah, well, Did no. I'll, I'll, I'll let him take credit. But it, but it was not specifically what I just said. Instead, he said, if Russia wants to talk to us about any kind of adjustments, first, they have to undo all of those steps they've taken. Only at that moment can you have a reciprocal conversation. Sorry, Rosa.
4: No, the only thing I was going to add was that I, you know, I think you're right, Ivo, about the framing and, and who's who's had the initiative on the framing and we've been reacting to their framing. And they're, no, 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 that's not right. And that's not a great position to be in. That being said, I think one unintended consequence, and this is a point that David, you've made several times, one unintended consequence of the way the Russians have been handling this is that they are they are helping the U.S. Be seen once again as a global leader, as the important country. Uh, And I think, you know, that our ability to be a global leader was sort of in tatters after after the Trump administration. But the fact that Putin can't stop talking about the United States has made it very clear that that from his perspective, we're the big country to worry about, and others have followed suit. This may turn out to be a mixed blessing, but I, I don't think Putin intended to build up the US in quite such a way.
2: Certainly not. This is normally a moment. And it will be again here where we take a very, very brief break. We say goodbye to the folks who are joining us from the world at large, who are not our members, and we encourage them to take this opportunity to go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and for about five bucks a month, become a member. And as we go through crises like this, this kind of incisive discussion of where we may go And where things may go wrong or right is just the kind of uh, reason that so many people have been signing up to become members recently, and we hope you will join them. And for all of you who are members, stand by. We'll start again in one moment.